Welcome, everyone, to episode two of the Canine Behavior Podcast. I'm Hisan Andes, your host, and I'm so happy to have a special guest on today, a student of mine, Ellen. Hi, Hisan. Hey, thanks for coming on. I'm excited. My pleasure. Me too. Um, so let's get right into it. This is going to be a really cool Q&A um, session, and I hope this is helpful for everyone. So let's get right into it. All right. I was going to ask you, what do you think the number one challenge is that gets between the human dog bond? I think the number one challenge, uh, which is challenging or which gets in between the human uh, animal bond is miscommunications. So a lot of times dogs are just being dogs, but people um, perceive it in a different way or they have a conception of it that's kind of like a pre preconceived notion of why the dog is doing something. And really the dog is just being a dog. So many times it's, you know, instinctual behavior, like when they, before they go to bed, they like to scratch the bedding, you know, and that's an instinctual behavior of cleaning critters off their sleeping spaces when they were living um, more in the wild, wild settings. So that that's kind of built into their DNA and they'll scratch the bedding, you know, and kind of do little circles before they lay down to rest. And, but people sometimes, you know, will interpret that as something else as, oh, I think my dog is doing that because he doesn't like the bedding <laughs> and things like that. So there can be, you know, miscommunications between um, the species, which makes sense because humans aren't dogs and dogs aren't humans. So there's, if you think about it, there's miscommunications even within our own species of, you know, human to human. So imagine the miscommunications that can happen between a verbal and nonverbal species. So I think many of the issues is communication. And that's why my mission at Pet Karma and for this podcast is to um, enhance and support better communication between the human and their dog so that they can have a better relationship. Does that answer like your question? It. Yes. Yes. Can, <laughs> okay. we talk a little bit, can we talk a little bit about puppy socialization? I know you've run a puppy kindergarten course for a long time and you've trained a lot of puppies. Yes. Yes. I love, I love um, socialization and developmental behavior. That's my specialty. So what do you, what would you like to share with us about puppy socialization? Like how, how should they be socialized? I think that, you know, the puppy's history is very important. So if you're getting a purebred puppy, um, make sure you have a lot of history on the breeder. You do a lot of research on the breeder and it's a credible breeder um, that starts the socialization pro process during the neonatal period. I think that would be an ideal situation and um, it's not hard to do right before you decide on what puppy you want to get or what pure breed you want to adopt. Um, you just take a, about two or three weeks and do some research on the breeder and research on the actual family, the lineage and check out any health issues or behavioral issues and get to know, you know, the, the mother and the father and the family situation that the puppies are growing up in. I think all of those things are really important. And for rescues, I think um, 
we don't have the luxury of having that information all the time, but getting as much information about the rescue dog and whatever the shelter can provide, I think is very important. So for example, if the dog was a stray dog versus like a dog that was given up, that's information that's pertinent information. Um, does the dog have a bite history, you know, any behavioral issues and all these things will really be helpful to the behavior consultant or trainer once you adopt your pet and now you want to work with and, and get more education. So with puppy socialization, I think once you get the puppy at eight weeks, which is the normal time that you get um, the puppy from a breeder, or if you rescue a puppy a little bit older, I think the number one most important thing to do is to understand that socialization is not always about putting that dog in front of things, right? In order for them to feel good about those things. So if the goal, the goal should always be is to um, boost the dog's confidence in society, boost the dog's confidence in with the world at large. And in order to do that, you don't have to bring that dog close to things. What you should do is bring them around those things, but have some distance and then do things that the puppy loves. Like, for example, you could do tricks, you could do, you know, dog obedience, you could do searching in the grass, um, things that the dog naturally loves to do instinctually, like hunting and searching and foraging and not very like close to the things that you're trying to socialize him with him or her with, but at a distance from those things. Like, so for example, if you bring a new puppy or rescue dog near a park where children are playing, you're not, the children aren't petting the dog or being, you know, like close to the dog, but the dog can smell the children, see the children and hear the children. And if you're doing something like searching in the grass with the dog, then the good feeling that he has from searching and foraging will, you know, he'll create an association with the children's smells and sights and sounds. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Passive socialization, we call it, right? Yeah. And I know, you know, recently you've had a lot of experience with that and um, have seen a lot of benefits with passive socialization. And so have I with my students and I think passive socialization and classical conditioning are one of the best methods to socialize new pets. Mm -hmm. Moving on to a different life stage. What about the adolescent or teenage dog stage? What are the main issues at that life stage? I think at that life stage, it usually hits when um, the baby teeth are falling out, the hormones change, um, the the testosterone starts coming in and dogs are the only mammals on earth that have um, a really high rate of testosterone uh, change during that developmental stage. So whereas humans get human males, you know, usually during puberty, we'll get like double the testosterone um, dogs, female and male usually get eight times the normal amount of testosterone. So um, needless to say, that causes a lot of behavioral changes. You know, they get stronger, they get faster, they get drivier. Um, their behavior seems to be up and down like a roller coaster. And 
a lot of the things that they did as puppies, they no longer do. So they're, you know, as puppies, they kind of most of the time they will follow you around. You're the earth, moon and stars. And then when they hit adolescence, it changes because now the hormones are coming in and they're more interested in what's going on in the world. So there's sometimes if you bring them outside, they're easily distracted by like leaves and movements and sounds and other things, other stimulus in the environment. So I think during that time is when training and education is the most important because a lot of miscommunications can happen during that time between the dog and their human. Should food be used in training at this life stage? Yeah, I think food should always be used at every life stage um, and as a reinforcer for, for good behavior. And just in general, I think food is so great. And episode one covers this, but there's a, you know, there's a covenant between humans and dogs that happened long time ago over 10,000 years ago. And that covenant was when, you know, dogs who lived not domestically decided to come in closer to the fire um, that they, you know, saw with, the, with humans, settlers. And the covenant happened, actually, they decided to come in and have a bond with humans and become companions of humans because of food, actually. So food was the bond that played such a big part in that covenant and that friendship and the relationship that we see now and the lifelong companionship that we have now that dogs, you know, provide us and we provide them. So I think food is so essential, um, not just to always kind of embody that covenant and relationship between dogs and humans, but also <clears throat> what better way to show you know, to educate someone, right, than to give them something that um, I, that essentially means life. So food is life. It gives its sustenance. It gives us, you know, life. It keeps us healthy. It gives us nutrients and vitamins and minerals and it keeps our stomachs full. And it, it's something that I don't, I don't think it can really be outdone by anything else when it comes to a reinforcer and to motivate someone to do something because it's a, it's life itself. Um, <clears throat> I will, however, say, and you know this, Ellen, because I say this all the time, it has to be used properly in dog training. So you can't just um, use food kind of without like a, a plan, right? Without a schedule and a scaling system to progressively wean out the percentage of food that you're giving and progress with cues and shape different um, behaviors that you would like to see. And so there's a scaling process. And I think that's where trainers and behavior consultants come in is they guide people and they coach people on how to progressively use reinforcement reinforcements. And so reinforcement doesn't always have to be food. It can be toys. It can be anything that the dog values in that moment. Sometimes if you're outside, they'll value exploration more than they do food. And so in that case, I would use exploration in place of food. And so it's not always going to be food, but many times with the majority of dogs, they will work very hard for food because it does represent life. I hope that answers your question. 
Yes, and it kind of makes me think of a another part of we're talking about puppies and adolescence and food. And I'd like to introduce crates into the conversation and crate training. Um, can you tell us how you feel about crate training and puppies in crate training versus adolescents in crate training? I think with puppies, it's a lot simpler because when you introduce something as a norm to a puppy, that's all it ever will know. So, you know, there's nothing, there's no negative associations yet. There's, it's less likely that there would be a negative association with a crate. Um, when you're talking about creating an adolescent, it's a little bit more challenging because if they don't have a foundation of habituating to containment or a crate from when it was, you know, a baby, then it's much harder to acclimate to that type of lifestyle as a teenager. What about if it's an adult dog or even a senior dog and, Same. and that has a negative association with the crate? Uh, what steps would you take to desensitize the dog's association with the crate? I found, you know, um, you're very familiar with like the crate games that we teach in Pet Karma. And I love the crate games, but I've actually never seen anything more effective in desensitizing containment stress or containment anxiety. Um, I've, I've not found something more, more effective in helping that than nose work, canine nose work. So with Nala as the example, cause Nala has like severe separation anxiety and containment anxiety. She's actually gotten better after this is her fourth week of canine nose work now. And she's actually finally gotten better in the crate and that's a huge win for her family and, and for us um, because as her canine nose work instructors, sometimes you just, you know, even for me, like I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I knew it was there, but I didn't really know when it was going to happen. And then just four weeks later, her parents saying like, oh, we see a huge difference. Like she can actually stay in the crate now and not, you know get so scared or get so anxious, um, hearing them say that and, and kind of celebrate that with us was a very big deal. And it's a testament to the sport, to the canine nose work sport, because I've found nothing so far that is more effective in helping dogs when it comes to um, containment anxiety. What if the anxiety um Uh, has the dog urine marking inside the crate. What should be done in that case? I think, I, I, I honestly think that, you know, you can play around with like the size of the containment area and the, ki the kind of containment area. But when it's um, anxiety to the point of their marking in the crate, and I think the case that you're bringing up the, the dog already has a marking behavior outside of the crate as well. Yes. So it makes sense that he would be marking in the crate as well. But I, I would honestly say canine nose work is, is, is the best um, remedy for that. Has he done crating during canine nose work yet? I haven't asked if he has or not, but I'm going to suggest it. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And just going very slow and progressively, like we 
like the way we did with Nala. Mm-hmm. You know, at first we didn't even create her at all because it was just too much. Like it w- it wouldn't work. So we did um, actually one of her bro- um, parents holding her and doing a puzzle with her until it was her time to search. So that was her latent learning in the beginning because she couldn't even take looking at a crate yet. <laughs> so and then we went from that to doing the puzzle closer to the crate so that she started to build more of a positive association with the crate in between searches. And as she started building her drive for the sport and then associating that with the latent learning, we, we slowly but surely moved the puzzle into the crate eventually, into the back of the crate. And now she can stay in the crate for up to, sometimes they said actually up to an hour the other day and she took a nap and she was okay. And that's huge because this is a dog that would not be able to do that even for a minute, just four weeks ago. It's a transformation for sure. Yeah. And it's not the end of the journey, obviously, like it's still going to be very challenging. Um, I think for a very long time because she does have, um, separation anxiety. And so it's not going to be a quick fix. It's definitely going to be a journey. Um, but I think having canine nose work be a part of that journey has been just like life changing. And I'm so glad that we were able to introduce her to that sport. Can we talk a little bit since we're talking about Nala and, and you brought up separation anxiety, what has been her plan, your plan for Nala to remedy this separation anxiety? Separation anxiety is such a complicated uh, issue. It's a clinical issue, and it's actually very rare for a dog to have clinical separation anxiety. And so the way that, you know, behavior experts and behavior consultants approach separation anxiety, I think should be holistic. So the way I approach separation anxiety is a very holistic method. So it's not like X, Y, and Z. It's actually like a five-prong approach or a 10-prong approach, which includes desensitization, crate training, um, canine nose work, outlets for, you know, canine enrichment, sometimes acupuncture, holistic treatments, um, dog behavior, you know, modification training. And so I think separation anxiety is not like something that is black and white. And I know this because my dog who recently passed away, Trinity, um, she had clinical separation anxiety and it took years, almost a decade to get it under control, um, get it to the point where she wasn't stressed, so stressed in the morning when we would leave for work and it took a lot of work. So it not only takes a, you know, change in the environment, there has to be environmental changes but also a lot of work with behavior modification, desensitization, counter conditioning. Um, We did a lot of natural treatments like acupuncture, laser therapy, herbs, essential oils. So I think when it comes to separation anxiety, it's definitely not like a simple fix. Trinity was an amazing dog. I miss her. Thank you. I miss her so much. She had, um, she was one of the rare dogs actually that had clinical separation anxieties. And that's something that Dave and I struggled with for 
for years. Um, she had the kind that was, it was very severe, but um, we had to make a change in our lifestyle for her and it was worth it because she did get better. And, um, but we did, we did make a change, a huge change in our schedules and our lifestyle, but we, it was all worth it for her because we loved her. When, when a, a caretaker is at home and they're evaluating their dog and, and they think that their dog has separation anxiety, what can you share with them about when they should seek a behavior consultant or a veterinary behaviorist? I think if the dog is um, harming themselves, in any way, um, they should seek professional help from a behavior consultant or behaviorist. So if there's any obsessive compulsive behaviors, like, you know, biting their paws or creating like hot spots, like irritation on the skin, cause they keep licking, um, chasing their tails or, you know, swallowing things like destroying, biting things and swallowing things. Um, that's not always necessarily like, um, a symptom of separation anxiety that could also be that just simple crate training and uh, chew toy training that hasn't been done. So for example, if a dog's like just biting things and eating, swallowing things, that doesn't actually mean that the dog has separation anxiety. It could mean that it just doesn't have basic training, like chew toy training of what is, you know, the preferred outlet for chewing. So, um, I would say for, for what was the question again? I lost my train of thought. When should they uh, seek the uh, a behavior consultant or a veterinary behaviorist if they think their dog might have separation anxiety? I think you answered that question really well by saying if the dog is harming itself by either um, self-mutilating or if they're um, eating foods that are not food. <laughs> They're eating, uh, what is the word, pica, I guess, when they're eating non-food objects. Yeah. Yeah. And, a, you know, a clear, a clear kind of sign that the separation anxiety is more on the serious, you know, spectrum is if the dog's pacing and drooling by the, by the thresholds where the people go in and out. Mm -hmm. So that's um, one of the clear kind of signs of, of more severe separation anxiety. So if um, people see that, you know, I would definitely reach out, but I would reach out even sooner than that. Cause even with just simple, even if it's not separation anxiety, you, you know, I would want parents to get like the proper diagnosis. Cause some people think it's more serious than it actually has to be. And then other people, you know, their dogs really do have something more serious and need better, you know, more treatment but they think it's something else. So I think getting a diagnosis early is really important. You know, your listeners may not know what chew toy training that you just mentioned, what that is. Can you tell us what chew toy training is? Yeah, you know, I find, and I don't know if it's just our school, Ellen, that, you know, works with high drive dogs, but I don't know if you noticed, but we work with a lot of high drive dogs. and. Um, 
But most dogs, you know, thrive when they work for their meals, when they work for, you know, when they have work to do and something productive to do. So true toy training is, you know, basically providing them an outlet for canine enrichment at least twice a day because they have to, you know, they eat twice a day or three times a day. And it's a guaranteed way to kind of keep pet parents on track to give outlets, proper outlets for work for their for their dogs. Because this satiates the need for the dog to search and figure things out and use critical thinking. And as a result, it's very fulfilling and enriching for the dog. So it's just a training basically of, you know, stuffing their meals into like Kongs and strong rubber toys or puzzles or slow feeders where dogs have to figure out how to get to their meal. And that gives them a little outlet every day like in a structured manner to um, have canine enrichment and also to have an outlet for critical thinking, which is so, so important for any dog, but especially the dogs that we work with, which are very high drive. Um, It's also a really good way to teach puppies like, oh, this is the preferred outlet for your nipping and biting, right? And chewing, like this is the preferred outlet, not, you know, X, Y, and Z, not mommy's curtains, not mommy's shoes, not, you know, daddy's arms. (laughs) Well, that kind of leads me to a question that I wanted to ask you about a negative association that a dog has developed with human hands. So what steps should we begin with to desensitize the dog? to human hands. If the dog already has a negative association. Yes. Um, I find the touch cue is really, really helpful for to desensitize human hands around the dog's face because touch cue is not viewed um, as once, once the dog learns touch cue and is fluent in touch cue, they don't view it as Um, oh, human scary thing approaching me to touch me. They view it as, oh, this is a fun kind of trick or job, a game that I'm doing with this human. And so touch cue is a a really great way to desensitize human hands around, um, especially the face and neck area of a dog. And actually bucket game too. And I didn't realize this actually until I saw (laughs) the lesson with Chirag, but um, I, I realized during that lesson when I was watching it that he that when he was lifting his hand during the bucket game and then moving his hand towards the collar, that's all desensitization. And that's such great, you know, I think acclimation to human hands as well, because it gives them it gives the dog. Um, it takes them from an emotional state of mind of being afraid or anxious to like a cognitive state of mind where they're like, oh, I'm doing this fun game and. I can earn, you know, food or treats if I, if I get the game, if I'm good at the game and they really love to do it. So their mind is like the mindset changes, you know, they're not thinking emotionally anymore. Now they're thinking like, oh, this is a fun game and I love this. And it's more a cognitive, like mental game. And then they start to associate those nice feelings with the human hands. And you use the bucket game with great success with Trinity. Can you Can you talk about that? And also for listeners who don't know the bucket game, can you explain the bucket game? Yeah, I, um, if I, I would be so honored actually to have Shirag on here soon to just thank him for 
the life-changing um, bucket game because I was introduced to it, I believe, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was introduced to it. And at that time, Trinity had been diagnosed with um, TCC, which is bladder cancer. And um, at that time, she was ha- she had had a history. She was already 12. So she had had a history of traditional kind of veterinary practices where it was not force free and she was oh, had to be muzzled and they would restrain her and she it would just be such a stressful event anytime we went to the vet for a wellness check or anything. Um, and she she was just always so stressed going to the vet and we were always stressed bringing her to the vet because we knew how stressed she was going to be. So even just for simple like nail trims and things, we would have to muzzle her beforehand. Um, When we would take her there, she had her tail tucked in between, you know, her legs and she was shaking because she we used to think it was because of the procedures that were being done that she was afraid of. But then when we discovered bucket game, we realized that it wasn't actually the procedures that she had an issue with. It was actually the restrainment. And just feeling like forced. And so Bucket Game just changed her life because Bucket Game is basically a game that Sharag Patel developed where dogs have a choice in what happens to them when it comes to medical and grooming practices. And so it's in a, a game for empowerment and inclusive, including the dog in the process in the cooperative care process. So they become like part of the team when it comes to like what is being done to them especially when it has to do with tactile, like medical or grooming procedures. And the game is basically we teach them when they look at the bucket, um, they get, they're giving us permission to start moving our hands and doing certain things. And for example, like brushing their teeth or, you know, brushing their fur, when they look at the bucket, that's initiating, you know, that, that process to start. And then when they look away from the bucket, that's when we move our hands back to a neutral place, like on top of our knees so that they have um, control, you know, and empowerment in the situation where they can actually like tell us I'm, I'm okay with this or I'm not okay with this. And when, when Trinity learned the bucket game, she absolutely loved it. She had so much fun with it. And because of the bucket game, we were able to get her all the treatments that she needed for her cancer, like acupuncture, um, laser therapy, just, you know, normal kind of tests like ultrasounds. And she would do the bucket game while they were doing it. So she didn't need to be restrained at all. And I just can't even like thank him enough because her life quality was so enhanced by the simple game. And she was just so, she loved it. She absolutely loved it. And she had so much fun doing it. And that's when I realized like none of the procedures, you know, had bothered her ever. It was really just the point that she felt forced and she felt like she didn't have a choice in the matter and things were just kind of suddenly done to her. And that was what was scaring her and making her upset. It wasn't the actual procedures. So it's just been like a life changer and I absolutely would, you know, recommend it to any pet owner for their dogs. Yes. All dogs seem to, and you train a lot of dogs on the bucket game and 
all dogs seem to love it. They really enjoy it. They do. They have so much fun with it. And it's like, it helps them to be focused. And it, you know, what I love about Chirag is that everything he does is also desensitization. Yes, the hands are predicting good things are coming. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed like he he has a brilliant mind, like the way he trains and the methods that he uses, everything is designed to like empower the dog and help the dog to feel more positive about certain things and, and the environment. And I think that is like so brilliant because in order to create like um, games or methods that do that, you really have to think like 20 steps ahead or more to figure out how that would all work. And so his mind, the way his mind works is very admirable. I love it. And Trinity really flourished because of it. And I'm so thankful that towards the end of her life, she had such a great experience. Um, and we were able to keep her healthy for so long. She, she passed away when she was almost 15. Um, and she outlived her cancer almost two years. So just so, so grateful. <laughs> you know, Shirag also has a different game. He's very creative, highly creative in the way he comes up with these games. Can you tell the listeners about the drop game that you had recommended that I use for my case study dog who has an aversion to human hands? Yeah. Um, you know, I can't even do it justice because I know there's a lot more to it than I can even say, cause I haven't, you know, done it in a long time, but it's also like a way to desensitize human hands. So going back to that, circling back to your question before Ellen about, you know, how to desensitize a dog to human hands, the drop game would be great because <laughs> the human hands are only involved to give drop more food. Right. And so I know when um, we first saw that video, maybe what in the, at first glance, it just looks kind of like a video where, we're teaching, you know, the dog, the verbal cue drop and the concept of drop. But as you watch it over and over again, you realize it actually is like a desense. It, it is desensitization and it's, you know, making positive associations with the human hands being near valued items. And it's also a preemptive way to prevent, res you know, resource guarding confrontations later in the future and I highly highly support that kind of training because like because I specialize in puppy training and developmental behavior most of what I do is to prevent future problems from occurring and so that's how my mind works but when I teach people certain things about resource guarding for example when the puppy's very young um one of the common kind of uh you know, reactions that I get from parents is, oh, he just, you know, my puppy doesn't have that problem. So we don't have to worry about it. And in my mind, I'm like, your puppy may not have that problem now, <laughs> but resource guarding is a really common instinctual behavior that most predators have, most dogs have, most people have. So why not make it a positive experience starting now? It just in case you know, for the future to prepare for the future. So that's how my mind works. And so I'm always like a huge advocate of any training that creates a positive association with human hands being near valued items like food, bones, or toys. 
Um, and the younger, the better. It's actually better to start when there is no issue because then there never will be an issue. And I think it's so important, especially with resource guarding, because um, it's a common, it's a common, um, I think, miscommunication between dogs and people. Yes, miscommunication. Um, can you tell the listeners more about how you define resource guarding or the common definition of resource guarding in case they've never experienced a dog with resource guarding? Yeah, resource guarding is a common behavior among like most predators um, and animals in general, so humans included. It's when like, for example, when an animal values something, it could be space, it could be food, it could be toys, it could be bones, it could be all of it or none of it depends what the animal values and then they're willing to fight for it so um like for example in my house <laughs> i'm not really that possessive of anything in my house but i am possessive about certain things and it, they're like silly things like um, my manuka honey i'm really possessive about my manuka honey so i'll share everything in my house but i don't want anyone going near my manuka honey don't ask me why it's just so random, but I'm very possessive about it. And I remember one time like Dave went and dipped like his spoon in my Manuka honey and I like lost it. I got really mad. I was like, do you know how much that bottle was? Like, don't ever touch my Manuka honey ever again. Like, so everyone has something that they value that's different. Dogs have things that they value, you know, that they may not have a problem with in certain situations, but in, then in other situations, they are willing to like have a confrontation over it. And so that's how I would define resource guarding is the willingness to kind of have a confrontation over a valued item because, you know, you feel possessive over it. So space is a common one. Food is a common one. Bones, toys. Those are the probably the top four common ones. And when you say have a confrontation over, are you talking about growling snarling snapping biting lunging what do you what do you consider confrontation so with dogs they give a lot of more warning signals than humans so like for me if i'm possessive about something i probably will just right away like i'll probably give one look and then if the person does it again i'll probably escalate right away to like yelling and then the person will know like to back off um like with the Manuka honey, like I didn't, I didn't really give him a warning, any warnings. I just yelled and then he never went near my Manuka honey again. Um, dogs actually give a lot more warning than that. But like we spoke of earlier, the miscommunications is many times like people don't recognize the warning signals. And that's why it, it escalates to like a growl or a snap or even a bite because all the kind of earlier warning signals were ignored. So that's no one's fault. It's just, you know, the fact that many humans don't understand dog body language. So the early warnings that dogs give that they're uncomfortable with like an approach or they're being possessive about something is they'll turn their face and do whale eye. That's when they turn their face away from you, but their eyes are still looking at you. We call it whale eye when you could see like like the whites of their eyes. And the other thing they'll do is they'll lick their lips. 
And that shows that they're starting to get stressed or they're uncomfortable with that situation. Um, they'll yawn. That's like usually the next warning signal. They'll yawn and show that they're feeling stressed. Um, sometimes the ears will be pointed, pricked forward and they're very alert. And I would say also like there's a freeze. So they're not like, they're not like their normal, like waggy, cute, you know, like soft kind of body language. They're kind of like really staring and glaring a little bit. And it's like a frozen, I would call it a freeze where they're like really looking at you um, and their ears are pointed at you and their body's kind of still. So I think that is like the top tier warning signals. And if all those are ignored, then and only then usually will they escalate to what I call the fire alarm, the growl, which is, you know, an alarm just showing that just vocalizing how they're feeling. And I think in many cases, a growl is very helpful because if humans can't read the body language, the non-silent, you know, warning signals, at least with the growl, the humans hear it. And so it shouldn't be something to be upset at the dog about because the dog's actually trying their hardest to communicate their discomfort. And, you know, just like a fire alarm, you wouldn't want a fire alarm not to have an alarm, like the, the sound part of it, because then you don't know, like the fire's happening. Um, just like that, you wouldn't want a dog not to growl because if the dog doesn't growl, then it'll just bite or snap and bite. So the growl is really important. And I think the best thing to do in a situation where there's a confrontation over a valued item and the dog has escalated to a growl or even a yawn or a lip lick or a whale eye is for the human to back off. I think backing off is the natural kind of um, de-escalation method. Mm -hmm. So backing off, I think, is is the smart thing to do there instead of continuing to do what's making the dog highly uncomfortable and then taking the chance to escalate the behavior later to more aggressive warning signals or even biting. Um, <clears throat> with my family members or anybody like in my community, I, I don't ever want to do anything like to escalate a confrontation. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, so why would you want to do that with your dog? in your home you want like most people want peace in their home so and they want harmony between the people who live in the home so if you know something is causing like a confrontation or something is causing like one of the members of your family like discomfort then instead of like pushing and escalating it it's better to it's wiser to back off at that moment and then try to figure out and work with a professional on how to um, make that situation better and avoid confrontations what if you have a peaceful home with the family dog, except for when visitors come to the house and the dog is uncomfortable with visitors and growls at visitors? I would say it's the proximity of the visitors. So, you know, if it's, if it's that serious where the dog is so uncomfortable that they're growling at the visitors, the dog should have its own space somewhere else, like a safe space. 
um, where they can still smell the visitors and still hear the visitors. And then that would be considered passive socialization. So from a place where they can't see the visitors, like they're far away from the visitors and there's a door, a gate, no one can go in. He can't come, you know, the dog can't come out. That would be an ideal environment for passive socialization where he could do like a nose work search or tricks with another parent or a parent who's coming in and out, do tricks, create games, um, even pet tutor while the guests are over. And that's a really great way to desensitize for guests coming over and also to make a more positive association with people visiting. The pet tutor is a device that we use for anyone who doesn't know that is, um, it dispenses treats when you press a remote control. Yeah, or you could set it on a automated time, right? Yes. Yep. So you can dispense treats like every minute or every five minutes. And that's a really great way to have a trainer without having a trainer, <laughs> like an actual trainer there. Um, but any of those games, you know, is, is so, so great. And this is, this is a great way to kind of like circle back to the first thing you asked Ellen, which is the miscommunication between dogs and humans. So in this scenario, that would be such an ideal situation for a dog who's uncomfortable with strangers in the house, right? It's so ideal to put him yes. in a safe, safe space, play fun games with him, do pet tutor, do canine nose work. And then over time, he builds positive associations with human smells and strangers um, and sounds. And that's so ideal for a dog. But guess what? Most humans don't want to do that because they think it's cruel to separate the dog from strangers coming in the house. They think it's cruel. So it's like that miscommunication that's causing a lot of issues in the dog training world. And from yeah. dogs, like just getting better. For our final question, can I ask a question about barking? Sure, of course. So if a dog's caretakers complain that the dog barks whenever it goes into the backyard and it places its paws up on the wall um, to the neighbor's yard and it tries to peek over the wall at the neighbors and where should they begin to turn that behavior into something better? I would say starting from inside the house. So um, I like to do, is this like a high drive dog with prey drive? Yes. Yeah, I would start inside the house to do um, preferred outlets for prey drive behavior, like get a cookie scatter, get it whiplash head turn, you know, canine nose work, because this is all like hunting, but it's preferred hunting behavior, right? This is like productive hunting behavior versus like going after the neighbor. <laughs> um, so we don't want them that to be like rehearsed or like a go-to game for them every time they go outside. So I would start inside the house to teach them verbal cues, like get it, get a cookie. That means one cookie on the floor search for one cookie on the floor and have them fluent in the verbal cues and in the game scatter, which means a handful of cookies on the floor, get it whiplash head turn, which teaches like um, not only recall, but also get it's a combination of get it and recall and heal and um, canine nose work inside the house, 
you know, because they still hear the neighbors, they still smell the neighbors. Dogs can smell for miles and hear for miles. So it's not like, you know, they can't still sense that the neighbors are there. And then as they get more fluent with these games and these cues, then you start to kind of progressively go outside. And that's what I would do. And also having a digging pit outside is really great too. And having a routine, like a pattern of what the preferred activity is outside when they go outside. So instead of the activity being, oh, I'm going to go after their neighbors, it would be, oh, I'm outside. I'm going to go to my digging pit and see what, what I can find there. So that's what I, that's what I would recommend. Um, and uh, Nala is actually, her parents are creating a digging pit for her. They're building it. So I can't wait for that. And you, you suggest building it like a sandbox or even getting a kiddie pool, right? Yeah. I think for a high drive dog, the kiddie pool wouldn't work because she, she's going to, she would rip through that because <laughs> she's so high drive, but um I think they have to build one with wood. Like it has to be really solid for her because she could destroy most things. Like she's destroying Kongs right now. But, and she's only, she still has her baby teeth. So imagine like a plastic pool wouldn't work. But I mean, for, for, you know, your kind of everyday kind of not non-destructive dog, I think a puppy, the, the pool could work. And you could fill it with like soil or sand and then, you know, hide treats and bones and fun toys in there so that every time they go outside, you know, they can dig and find and search, you know, yummy things and fun things. And then they'll get used to like, oh, every time I go outside, you know, they have something to look forward to, like an activity that they look forward to. But some people also build like actual digging pits, digging areas in their yard with wood. They'll take wood and, you know, they'll create like a area and I think that's better for like the high drive dogs Mm -hmm. if any of your listeners today would like to enroll in your puppy instructor program or your excellent pet behavior instructor program how would they do that oh they can just go on um petkarmadogtraining.com and um they'll you know they'll see the pet behavior program there and the puppy instructor program there. We have an online course and also in-person coaching, but it's been really fun. I'm, I started offering that years ago, actually, and it, it wasn't online. It was in person only, but now we offer both online and in person. So, And I can say I thoroughly enjoyed it and learned so much from you, Hisan. It's been a great experience. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so, it's been so nice, like having you on today. And I'm really honored to have you as one of my first guests for the canine behavior podcast. This has been great. I really look forward to all the podcasts of the future. Me too. And I would love to have you back on if you, if you would like. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you, Hison. Okay. Thank you. Have, have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye.